Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that your words that we hear and we try to interpret and um, discuss as a church would be green pastures and still waters for those of us who need them, that you would lead us this morning in the right way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I am a poor pilgrim of sorrow. I'm in this world alone. No hope in this world for tomorrow. I'm trying to make heaven my home. Sometimes I'm tossed and I'm driven. Sometimes I don't know where to roam. I've heard of a city called heaven. I've started to make heaven my home. My mother's gone on to pure glory. My father is still walking in sin. My sisters and brothers won't own me because I'm trying to get in. In his book, The Spirituals and the Blues, the theologian James Cone explores the meaning of heaven in black slave spirituals like the one that I just read. And he begins one chapter with these questions. How was it possible for black slaves to take seriously their pain and suffering in an unfriendly world and still believe that God was liberating them from their earthly bondage? How could they really believe that God was just when they knew only injustice, oppression, and death? What exactly was revealed in their encounter with God that made them know that their humanity was protected from the insanity of white masters and governmental officials? The answer to these questions lies in the concept of heaven, which is the dominant idea in black religious experience as expressed in the black spirituals. So James Cone asks, how could God be good if the world was so evil? How could so much wrong be made right? How could God's word speak of freedom when black slaves knew only bondage? The faithful Christians of Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, the people that John was writing to in his apocalypse, known as Revelation, were asking the same kinds of questions. They had been told that Jesus had risen from the dead on Easter morning, that death had been defeated, that Jesus would come back to rescue them, and yet the world, as far as they could tell, wasn't getting a lot better. Yes, their lives had been caught up by the grace of God. Yes, they had felt themselves changed by the spirit that indwelt them. Yes, they encountered the risen Christ in the love of their community and in their shared life together. But Jesus supposedly came to redeem the whole world, right? Not just individual souls. To bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free. The gospel, the good news, was supposed to be not only spiritual, but also social and political and environmental. God was supposedly not only transforming individual lives, but the very order of the cosmos, the very shape of reality. But the world wasn't getting better, especially not for followers of Christ. John wrote to those who were being oppressed, or those who were in danger of being oppressed, 
or those who, if they stopped trying to, like, accommodate Rome while also claiming to follow Jesus, would certainly end up being oppressed. And it's clear from Revelation that some followers had already been martyred. So, like the black slaves in the Antebellum South, the Christians of Asia Minor asked, Where is God? How is God working now? How could God make all of this right? And like the black slaves that James Cone wrote about, John, in our reading this morning, looks to the future. In this vision depicted in our reading today, he looks and sees a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. So we're back in the throne room that we described last week with the lamb and the one seated on the throne and the four weird creatures with eyes all over them and the elder, 24 elders and uh, the myriad of angels and the seven torches and all this. We're back in that room. But now even more people have arrived. Now there's a great multitude of people that no one can count from all over, from everywhere. People from different cultures and locations, people who speak different languages, but they're all singing one song together. Somehow, their different voices, different languages converge in one beautiful harmony. Like the apostles at Pentecost, they speak different languages, and yet their words come through crisp and clear. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And then there's this kind of funny scene, at least I think it's funny, is John's watching all this happen, and this elder comes up and is like, oh, who are those people, John? And John's like, you already know that I don't know who that is. Like, he's like, I'm, I'm up here, I'm in heaven, I'm just a human, and there's like four creatures with eyes all over them, and there's a myriad of angels, and like, I don't know what is going on. And instead of just telling me, this elder comes up and is like, so what's going on? And John has to admit that he doesn't know. And the elder tells him, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. These are those people who have suffered, who have been hungry, who have been thirsty, who have literally slaved under the hot sun and been burned. In this vast multitude of people are the martyred friends and family of the people that John wrote to. And also in this vast multitude are the slaves who James Cone wrote about. And in this multitude is Emmett Till and Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner and Sandra Bland. And Matthew Shepard is there. And the student who was killed in Colorado this past week is there. And the Christians killed in churches in Sri Lanka are there. And I believe that the Muslims killed in Christ Church New Zealand are there. And the Jews killed in shootings in Poway and in Pittsburgh are there. Because the good news of the gospel is that life wins, that love wins, that death is not the end. 
And we celebrate this all year round, but especially right now in the season of Easter. In the book of Revelation, and, or in the gospel in general, and especially in our book of Revelation, God promises that all those who have suffered will be comforted. All those who have hungered and thirsted and suffered violence will join the heavenly banquet feast. They will at last be safe. But isn't there a little bit of danger in this message? Isn't it a little bit dangerous to push justice and redemption and everything being made right off until the next life? Didn't Karl Marx tell us that religion is the opiate of the masses? And isn't this exactly what he's talking about? If we just wait for the future, we'll kind of sit back and let all kinds of horrible things happen today. Well, yes, that is definitely a danger. But just because it's complicated or risky to talk about these things doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about them. Just because we have to tread lightly doesn't mean we shouldn't begin the journey in the first place. Because any time that we talk about God, it's risky. Any time we talk about heaven or the eternal or any of those things, we're uh, in a little bit of danger, probably. Um, so I think that we have to talk. I think that heaven is very important. I think the future is very important, and I think that, that is clear through all Scripture. So we have to talk about it. Um, there's a tendency in churches to either talk exclusively about the next life, about heaven and probably hell, um, or to not talk about those things at all. To make the Christian message all about the future or to make the Christian message all about the past. And both of those um, approaches have their pros and their cons. First, the pros. Uh, those churches that are more socially active and justice-minded often stress the implications of the gospel for today. They rightly remind us that Jesus became incarnate. Jesus entered into the real world, the world of his day, 2,000 years ago, healed real wounds, challenged real leaders, died on a real cross, and rose bodily on the third day. On the other hand, those churches that focus more on the next life generally have a very robust faith in the work of God. They admit that they can't save the world on their own, and so they trust that God will take care of them and the world. They don't give in to despair as easily because their hope is not based on this life, but the next one. But both of these perspectives also have their downsides, too. Those churches that focus only on the present often find themselves overwhelmed and burnt out. Maybe, I don't know always, but probably often socially active, but maybe spiritually depleted. Because despite all of their strivings, despite everything they do to follow Jesus, the injustices continue to come the powerful continue to oppress the powerless, the strong dominate the weak. They do their best to follow Jesus, but in the end, they are not Jesus. On the other hand, again, those who focus solely on the future and the next life may become desensitized to the injustices that the other group is fighting so hard against. This world, in their mind, is a lost cause, and so their primary concern becomes about personal morality and saving souls for the next life while failing to take Jesus' teachings about this life seriously. They're maybe a little too busy looking up for Jesus to notice Jesus among them and their brothers and sisters who are thirsty and need water, who are naked and need clothing, 
But when the two come together, when we uh, let the future that we believe in shape our present, when our faith is that God alone can save, but that God has wonderfully, miraculously invited us into that saving work, then I think we're starting to get somewhere. Then I think we're starting to understand what Revelation is all about. James Cone says that the African-American slaves understood that God's future turned the present on its head, that tomorrow upends today. He says, black slaves were not passively waiting for the future. They were actively living as if the future were already present in their community. So if the future is already actively present today, then we can't stand for injustices today. Far from waiting from the next life to be free, instead of waiting for heaven to claim their dignity, black slaves demanded freedom in the present, dignity and respect now. If we as a church and as people who follow Jesus are truly committed to God's future, which is depicted in our reading today as people from all over and all different cultures and all different backgrounds and all different languages raising one beautiful song, then we have to rally against everything that stands in opposition to that vision. Any ideologies or laws or structures or systems that divide up people and prioritize some over others. We can't wait for God's future to come because God's future has already come crashing into our present. God's kingdom has already broken into our world, and we are those who live into it now, believing that in the future, everyone will live into it. One day, as our reading says, the lamb who is slaughtered, Jesus Christ, will shelter all people. There will be no more hunger or thirst or exposure, no more exploitation, no more abuse, no more violence. So we, as the people of God, cannot allow those things now. If it's not a part of God's future, it can't be a part of our present. But where does all of our hope come from? How can we really believe in John's uh, vision in Revelation? All of the hope, all of our hope for the future and the present is, of course, rooted in the past. It's rooted in Jesus. It's rooted in Easter, which is what we're still in the process of celebrating. Throughout Revelation, the lamb stands at the center, but the lamb is always the lamb who was slaughtered. He reigns in the present and in the future, and yet he always bears the marks of the past. Everything that John writes about, the entire vision, is made possible by Jesus. This truth also comes through in black slaves' spirituals. James Cone says that these songs make clear that the future is not simply a reality to come. It is a reality that has already happened in Jesus' resurrection and is present now in the midst of the black struggle for liberation. We can live into God's future now because Christ defeated death in the past. Is it beginning to make sense why all through Revelation, God keeps being called the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. Because the story of God encapsulates all of time, and we find ourselves living in a present that is constantly invaded 
by both the past and the future. The cross and the resurrection are so close to us that Paul says that we have already died and risen with Jesus. And the future is so close that Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is among us now. We are caught up in this life with God, and God is the one who was and who is and who is to come. In the words of the poem that we heard last week by Anis Mujangi, we are almost home. We are almost home. But when we get there, when we arrive at the throne that's described in Revelation, we'll realize that we have always been home because God has already made God's home among us. When we stand beside the Lamb, we'll realize that the Lamb has been standing beside us all along. When we raise our voices to sing this new song, we'll realize that it's the song we've been trying to sing all along. We just didn't have the words yet. So when we come together and we worship and we sing these different songs, we are trying to sing the song that is being sung in Revelation. And we do our best to sing the words we know, and we let the saints of the past fill in the songs that we've, the words that we've forgotten. We let the saints of the future fill in the words that we've yet to learn. And we let all of our voices across time and space converge as we sing this one song that God, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come, hears through all of eternity. Amen.